had a super fun time at our place. I, you know, it's always difficult pulling off surprises. Um, I love doing it for my family, and some of you had asked, you know, I told you my daughter Colleen and her boyfriend were coming, and they showed up and were here. They left early this morning. And then some of you are saying, well, is Ryan coming out? And I said, well, no, Ryan and Gabri are at home for Christmas. That's all I said, but we surprised the rest of the family with them coming out last Thursday, and I'm sure half the neighborhood found out about that surprise when my wife saw the kids standing at the door. It was a lot of fun. Uh, love doing surprises, and uh, it's been really good having them here and the grandkids, and uh, they're here through till next Thursday, so we're going to have lots of fun uh, enjoying them and uh, playing with grandkids, so it's, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we're down to the new year, and I don't know uh, whether you're a New Year's resolution person or not. It's actually, for me, as I talk to people, almost passe, people like, yeah, just because it's a new year, I'm not setting any goals. Uh, I often have been convinced that people aren't doing that anymore simply because they know they're going to fail within two weeks and it's no point doing it. Um, I, I, I think it's always a challenge. I think uh, some of us are wired for goals. Others just don't like being defeated by ourselves, and so we just stop doing it. Uh, but as you step into the new year, we hope to share some things this morning, hopefully, that can stir your thoughts to uh, resolve something like that in terms of your own mind and where the Lord has you stepping into the new year. So I'm going to invite you just to bow with me before we open the scriptures, and we'll uh, jump into, I think, a really appropriate text as we finish off this year. Father, we humbly bow before your presence, and we want to be enamored again by the glory of Christ, to know that he is the one that defines all of life, and in this broken and damaged world, that you give us this profound hope because of our relationship with Jesus. You give us hope that we're not just trying to survive life, but that you empower us to discover the joy and the fullness and the peace of Christ in the midst of a chaotic world. You help us to be better husbands and fathers. You help us to be wives who help make husbands, our spouses, better because of our presence in their life. Father, you help us deepen friendships and willing to take risks knowing that you are the one that ultimately is our greatest friend and will be with us in the good times and the bad. We ask that we would realign our hearts and lives to eternal things as if, even as we finish off this year and pray that you give us the courage to take aim on Christ and the power of your spirit in us so that we might live lives that are filled with uh, your fullness the power of your spirit, the wisdom of your word, so that we can navigate well the life that you have us and desire us to live. For all of this, we pray, we give you thanks for stepping into your word this morning and ask uh, that your spirit would again be our teacher and our mentor and our instructor to not only help us understand information, but really help it to shine brightly on the areas of our life that we need to do everything from repent of to adjust our lives so that it reflects your truth and your principles by the way we live. And for all of this, we give you thanks as we come before your throne of grace again, and we thank you in Christ's strong name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we are working through the Gospel of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Uh, Jesus, as we will note as we work through this, has just finished telling him about his suffering his death, his burial, and resurrection, and then we have them on this journey to Capernaum. So I'm in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. You can follow along on the slides 
up front or on your digital Bibles or whatever you happen to have in front of you this morning, uh, starting in verse 33, Mark chapter 9. And they, being Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. There are a couple of parallel passages, one in Luke and the other in Matthew, that have the same account. I want to take the time just to read through those so that you get sort of the full description of it. And part of it, there's a little bit of a humorous element to this as we step into this discussion the disciples have about who's the greatest and uh, trying to discover who is the most significant, who's the most important one, who has contributed the most to the cause. Whatever, whatever that discussion looked like, I don't think it would be any different than what we would have in our own midst uh, and in the circles that we travel. Luke chapter 9 has a shorter version of it, starting in verse 46, and it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him in by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you uh, all is the one who is great. Matthew says it this way, and at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones uh, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Each of them have a little different nuance in terms of this experience. It goes from a discussion to an argument to them asking Jesus, which of them does he think is the greatest, which just sounds total foolishness when you're standing in front of Jesus asking such a question. But as we walk through this, I want you to notice first and foremost that they begin this section as they're traveling to Capernaum, uh, debating this issue about who's the greatest. Now, I ran into a statement this, uh, this morning as I was going back over my studies from Jonathan Edwards. He was the great revivalist. And he, uh, the story is told that he sat down at the age of 17 and, and penned out 21 resolutions by which he would live his life. So I don't know if it was New Year's or not, but anyway, he wrote out these resolutions that would help define the direction of his life. He added to this list until he was dead, or until his death, and he ended up with 70 resolutions. He put this at the top of the list. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. To follow up each week, Edwards did a self-check. He regularly summed up how he was doing and sought God's help in the process. You know, I, I think for a lot of people, and a lot of Christians especially, the idea of setting a goal or setting a resolution of how I want my life to change has, as I mentioned before, become passe. 
Because I think the danger for many of us is that our lives are so cluttered up with anything else, the thought of adding anything new and bringing actual change to my life sounds even mentally and emotionally exhausting, and I don't want to fail at it, so I'm not even going to bother trying. And, and I think we get into this defeatist attitude that our success and significance and self-worth is based upon performing things before God so that he will be proud of us. And yet at many times there couldn't be anything further from the truth in terms of our relationship with Christ if we actually understand it. This morning I want to venture through this a little bit in the sense of understanding the, the context in which they were talking about, and I've mentioned it already, is Jesus has just finished talking to them about one of the most significant truths in all of the scriptures, and that is his upcoming death and burial and resurrection. It will frame and change all of eternity, not only from the Old Testament, but everything moving forward. Because his death and resurrection secures, as it were, salvation for all the Old Testament saints. It guarantees the sufficiency of dealing with the wrath of God on a broken and sinful humanity. And we know the gospel because of this because it establishes a new covenant relationship. Not because I go to church, but because I've come to the conclusion, as 1 John 5, 11, and 12 say, that this is God's testimony, that he has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. The person who has the son has a life. The person who does not have the son does not have the life. And so everything revolves around the person of Jesus. And so it is critical that as you come to the new year, I, if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, I hope that you'll hear that your relationship or lack of it to Jesus Christ is fundamental to your eternal destiny. And if you do not understand that relationship, today before you step into the new year is the day to figure that out. I mean, there's nothing more important. And yet, like the disciples who just were given the most critical teaching from, that Jesus could really communicate to them, suddenly they're, we're told in the text they're afraid to ask, probably because Jesus got in Peter's face when he asked about it and started talking about this earlier. Peter stepped up and was trying to be great he was trying to be a hero, and he said, Jesus, this is never going to happen to you. If I have to lay down my life, I will defend you to make sure this doesn't happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because all you have is man's thoughts on your mind, not God's. And so they're afraid to ask Jesus when he brings this up again, and so what do they do? Well, they default to the thing they think they know best, and that's who's the greatest. I mean, we're, we're familiar with this idea of who's the greatest. Certainly in our sports world, we talk about the GOAT, right? You talk about the greatest of all time, and if you listen to sports radio, you hear that that's half their discussion, is who's the greatest of all time? Who's going to become the greatest of all time? In golf, it revolves around people like Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas and Bobby Jones. If you play football, it's around Tom Brady. If it's basketball, it's LeBron James or... Michael Jordan or whoever you think fits that bill. But they have these constant debates on radio as to who's the greatest of all time. Well, that's kind of what the disciples were doing. They're kind of going, hey, up to this point, who's, who's going to be the greatest? It sounds ludicrous, but it's not something that any of us haven't had a discussion in our own life. Oh, we might not have delusions of greatness, but the underlying reality of that is that I want my life to count for something. I want it to be significant. I, I want to leave a legacy. I, I, want it to, I want it to matter. 
And so it, it gets really extrapolated into this great picture of, of who's the greatest, but the underlying realities for all of us is, I wanna be worth something. I wanna matter, I wanna make a difference. And yet we often struggle with it because we use all of the world's standards to measure what greatness really looks like. And I can just assure you that if you step into the new year thinking that your idea of greatness and success and significance is based on how the world operates, you're gonna be sadly disappointed. And so as we move into this, I want us to try to explore that this morning very briefly about the reality of greatness, at least in terms of how Jesus is gonna talk about it. Now it's interesting that the story starts us by saying they're going to Capernaum and they're walking along the, lo- the way and Jesus must have been going ahead of them or something because he's not really part of the discussion. Because G- we know Jesus hears them debating, arguing, having this debate about who's the greatness uh, and, but he's not involved in the discussion. So they have this conversation all the way till they get to Capernaum and they get into the house and Jesus doesn't leave it alone. He, and I don't know whether he actually knew or he's just trying to figure out if they'll tell him the truth. But he goes, listen, I just finished telling you about the most magnificent reality of what I'm gonna face in the near future here and you guys are debating who's the greatest. So he says to them, hey guys, like, what were you chatting about on the way? Man, that, I think they would have just froze right there. I think they would have just suddenly went, oh, really? And then they probably look at it and say, who's got the biggest lie to tell the one who's the greatest? Like, what are we gonna say to them? And, and so they, they're afraid to ask, they start getting into this process, and Jesus kind of figures it out. When you look at the other Gospels, you see that, well, Jesus, we're trying to figure out who's the greatest. Like, who, who's, your, who's your MVP player here? Who's the one that, you know, you really wanna honor? And Jesus is going to deal with it, but. I wanna come back and just pause there for a moment and say, you know, there's a huge danger because this idea of greatness really permeates our culture. I mean, our our sports world is king of the world, so to speak, and that's how we measure a lot of things. It's great to play sports, I played when I was growing up, but you know how addictive and controlling our sports world can be. We know families that just literally run themselves to death trying to give their kids all the great sports experiences in the world. And so there's, there's a really deep embedded reality that this is what success looks like. Uh, I think I've told you the story before that when our kids were playing baseball, we had one coach who had twin boys and he would often say, these kids are my retirement program. And he just knew in his own mind that these kids were gonna go to be professionals and they were gonna be his retirement program. Of course, he worked them so hard they flamed out in high school and never played baseball again. It's amazing what we will sacrifice in order to be great. It's amazing what people will do in order to make their businesses great. It's amazing the commitment that we have to be great. And the danger is is that often it's far too costly than what it's worth. And this is what Jesus addresses. And they have this moment in real life. This is not in the classroom. It's not in the synagogue. It's not even a formal setting. Some of the best teaching moments come out of real life circumstances. And they're talking about who's gonna be the greatest, so Jesus steps into this conversation and says like, what are you guys talking about? You know, I suspect some of them had a little bit of a leg up on others. In fact, I bet you Peter would go, huh, you know, I've walked on water and you guys haven't. 
And I suspect that's why Matthew is the only one who records that story. The other two didn't bother. They're probably sick and tired of him gloating about it. They don't even record that he walked on water. They just, yeah, we're, we're tired of him getting this thing. We'll just talk about what Jesus did, not what Peter did. Some of them, probably Peter, James, and John, probably would have said, well, listen, we were up, this is the time we're gonna talk about the transfiguration. Jesus told us not to tell anybody, but if we're talking about the greatness, this is the privilege that God gave to us, not you guys. I'm surprised they didn't break into a fist fight, these guys. I mean, their egos would have been all over the map trying to discover who is the greatest among them in terms of what they've experienced and what they've done. But the issue of all this, as I've mentioned before, gets down to the issue of many of us will never see greatness. There's just too much talent, too many abilities and everything else. Some of us live with the delusion that we want to be great. But then we end up comparing our lives to so many people. And I want to suggest to you that as I've mentioned already, that the personal need in our lives when it comes to even this discussion about who's the greatest really comes down to three basic things, although I'm sure we could broaden this. One is self-worth. I knew, and I've told you my story lots of times, I wanted to be great just to be even. I thought I had to be better than everyone else in order just to have value and self-worth that matched where I saw everybody else. And and so greatness was my idea of trying to build up enough self-worth that I could have friends and not have to compare myself or think that I'm worthless compared to the people around me. For other people, it's significance. I want my life to count for something. I don't wanna be a nobody. I I wanna make a difference. I wanna have an impact in somebody's life and it really doesn't matter whether it's just my kid's life, my spouse, some friends that would actually need me in a way that I could make a difference in their life. But in some fashion or other, there's, we want to be great because we want to make a difference. And there can be a genuine desire in all of our hearts to matter, to count, to, to, to make some kind of difference where I have a purpose in this world. And even for many Christians, their whole life is clouded by a sense of complete self-worthlessness. They don't think they can do anything. And they've resigned their lives not to think about greatness, but hey, I know Jesus is my personal savior and all I care about is what he can do for me and I'm not gonna get involved, I don't wanna risk anything, I'm not gonna get hurt by anybody else, I'm just gonna get through life and I'm perfectly content with that. And so we've created a a refuge away from life. But self-worth, significance, and security is all built around this idea of performance, success, and legacy, and self-sufficiency. I mean, isn't that what we're after? We all want to build a a financial self-sufficiency in life so that when no one will pay us anymore, we're going to be good. We're not going to become a burden on someone else's life because I have successfully established enough self-sufficiency that I don't have to count on anyone. Does it sound like a familiar message? (laughs) Sound like you've heard that somewhere before? Maybe it's so intuitively natural to us because it's our whole culture. Bigger is better. More success means more admiration. You see it, and we've talked about it before, social media can be great tools to communicate. They can also be really destructive. I mean, social media is the place where everyone's trying to be successful. How many followers you can get, how much you can get money from doing it. You see Instagram ads all the time now saying, hey, you can get millions and thousands of dollars a month just by doing nothing. Everybody wants to be significant. And so as we look at this whole issue, I think we all have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, what is it that I want to be great at? 
Now, there can be a really sincere, I want to be a great dad. I want to be a great grandparent. I want to be a great husband. But I can't get that necessarily from the world. I have to ingrain my thoughts and my emotions and my feelings and the way that I think in the scriptures so that I'm great according to what God calls me to. And I I just want to encourage you, we don't need more people pursuing greatness according to the world. We need men and women who are going to say, I want to be great for God. I want greatness to be his label upon my life because I'm committed to the things that God says is what's great. So, of course, the obvious question is, what does that mean? I mean, you do realize the Pharisees and the scribes would have accused Jesus of having a God complex and thinking he's great. I mean, if you go back to Mark chapter 2, Jesus saw the faith of these men who were trying to help the paralytic And he says, son, your sins are forgiven when he saw their faith. And some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming for who can forgive sin but God alone. I mean, they're sitting back and going, this Jesus guy has a God complex. Well, yeah, he did, actually. But it was a genuine God complex because he was God in the flesh. The problem is, is that there's too many ordinary human beings like you and I that get a God complex that think we are God's gift to people around us. What, what would they ever do without me? If, if these knuckleheads around me would just listen, then life would be so much better. It's, it's like the, the tax gatherers praying, or the scribe praying and saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these other clowns. And the danger with competition and comparison is that it can have a fun component, but it also can be a dangerous way that we measure our sense of success. And so Jesus himself was accused of this idea of greatness. Obviously, he can claim it better than others. But he accused the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of that time, Listen to what he said back in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What a great definition of messed up greatness according to the world. It's it's what I would call religious greatness because if we practice certain things and show up like on Sunday and all our good stuff and say all the right things, then people will see a facade of righteousness and holiness that isn't really the reality of my heart. I'm doing this because if I don't do it, people might think less of me. And he goes on and says, for they they will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the, hip, uh, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. See, that, isn't that the danger? Is that we, I mean, that's the whole process of our world, is let's portray an image of who we are and what we're like that isn't the reality of life. And it's all based on external appearance and what people think, rather than what God wants and desires for us in terms of our relationship with him. But the resignation of most, many people is, I have no interest in being great. I'm fine just getting through the week. And not only do we not have an aspiration to be great in the eyes of the world, but we have no desire to be great even in terms of our relationship with God. 
That sounds like a really precarious, we have no desire to be great, but we don't even have a desire to honor God in terms of the way we live. And so greatness isn't even in our vocabulary. But then Jesus does this disclosure about personal greatness, and he flips everything that is intuitively different than the way they've grown up, even in this first century community. And so Jesus comes and he says, he sat down and called the 12. Now, the idea of a rabbi or a teacher back in that time when they sat down was more of a formal position of teaching. And so Jesus takes this casual debate uh, that they had coming along the way to Capernaum and now he's gonna turn it into a really powerful teaching moment. And there's one basic principle that Jesus is going to tell them. And if you miss everything else I say, I hope you can hear the words of Jesus in your own heart and say, here's what Jesus, Boy, if there's anyone you want to listen to, you don't have to listen to me. If there's anyone you ought to listen to, you ought to listen to Jesus if you know him personally. I mean, if you don't, it probably doesn't matter. But if you want to be great as far as what God wants for your life, Jesus simply sat them down and he called the 12 and it's just their little close group and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Well, that stinks. I mean, there's nothing about our world that has a lot of that to it. There's obviously places in our world that has that, but the world's so much about bigger and better and how many followers you have and everything else that it's like, Jesus turns this thing so much on its head that it's like, hey, if you really wanna be great, if you wanna be first, learn to be a servant. And obviously the element here is learn to be my servant first, be a servant of your heavenly Father, Just do what he wants you to do. Obey him and don't worry about this other stuff. And yet that's so hard. Our minds are so cluttered up with all this stuff that goes on in the world that the idea of just being a servant is like, that sounds boring. There's no drama in that. There's no adrenaline rush in terms of that. I want to jump off a cliff and skydive. I want to do triple flips off a glacier when I'm skiing. I want to be able to post this on Instagram and have everybody wow over it. A servant? Really? Yeah. And Jesus is saying, listen, you can impress all the people you want in the world. If you really want God's approval, learn to be a servant. Learn to submit to his will and his purpose and that relationship and when you're into the life, all the accolades of this world will drip away and fall to dust. And you'll stand before your heavenly father and Jesus as your savior. He's gonna look at you. And of all the people in the entire universe that you wanna hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's gonna be from his lips. Would that be enough for you? Would it really be sufficient for you to hear that from Jesus if you get no accolades and no awards and no prizes and no followers, would that be enough for your life moving forward? So Jesus flips the script and the the verbiage here is, hey, if you wanna be first, it's okay to be second. That's how many of us interpret that. Hey, if I can't be first, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna come in second, so you know, I let so-and-so win. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not, 
that if you can't be first, you've got to be at least second or third. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, don't worry about being first. Be a servant and be last. Honor the people around you. Let them gobble up the success. And if you do that well, my heavenly Father is going to reward you with eternal benefits, even if you get nothing from this world. And so it becomes a challenge. He takes this child, put him in the midst of them. You notice that Jesus doesn't take any of the disciples and say, hey guys, if you want to really be great, do what Peter did. He doesn't take any of them. I think that's so significant. He doesn't pick one of them. Peter's probably sitting there like, seriously, I walked on water and these clowns didn't do it. Why aren't you picking me? James and John are kind of like, we were at your transfiguration. We saw Moses and Elijah. There's no way these guys can beat that. Jesus takes a young child and says, hey, if you want to see greatness, here's the picture. I'm going to take someone who's insignificant in terms of the culture, has no prestige, no power play, no honor, no glory, none of that stuff. It's a simple child who is dependent on everyone and needs help. And he's going to say, here's the picture of greatness in the kingdom. That only those who have the humility to come before God as a little child, those are the ones that understand the sense of greatness. They've learned to, the problem with us as we get adults is we just way outthink ourselves. Way too much. And we have all these plans and plans and ingenuity and creativity of all the things we're going to do for God and really impress him. Jesus says, hey, it's, I'm not using any of you as this illustration. We're going to use a, a small child, and if you want to understand greatness in God's kingdom, it starts right here. And so Jesus takes him and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but also him who sent me. It's very similar to when he sent the, the disciples out into the countryside to go to all the Jewish towns and cities and they were to announce the message of the gospel of the coming kingdom and he says listen if they receive you because you are my direct representatives here and my messengers if they receive you then they're going to receive the message if they don't shake the dust off your feet on them and move on because they've got their hearts are so hard and caught up to use the language we are this morning they're so caught up with their own greatness and their own self-sufficiency their own success that they're not interested in who I am And so it becomes difficult to understand the elements, but it's literally saying, now Jesus is not saying everyone who runs around and welcomes a child and does it in his name, then they're going to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's basically saying, you have to come to me and you have to come to God like a little child. And the part of there is missional. If people respond to those who are part of God's family and his messengers in the world, and they're willing to welcome them and receive them, in essence, through the gospel, they'll end up receiving Jesus. And it, and it tells me that if you and I want to be great, if we want to be involved in something significant, then he's, what he's suggesting to them is, hey, if you go out representing me and you share the hope of the gospel with lost, sinful human beings, and they, they respond to that and receive you, you're doing something great. Because you're giving people the hope 
of eternal life through the gospel. And you're making a significant difference by having the courage to share Jesus with people who don't know him. It's not even so much I'm doing something great for God, like he can't handle it on his own, but I'm doing something great in his kingdom because I'm so convinced of being a servant of God that I'm willing to exchange all the honor and the accolades that I could get in this world and I'm just gonna be a servant of Christ sharing Jesus with lost people. I don't know about your resolutions. I'll tell you one that's been on my heart. I'm discipling a few people personally and so I've shared it with them. I'd love to have the courage to share Jesus with at least 20 people this year. Not this year, next year. I'm in big trouble if I do it this year because I haven't got there. Next year, tomorrow we're starting. <laughs> and some people would say, why would you do that? Because you don't control that. Well, but if I have a servant's attitude to Jesus and I'm willing to step into conversations with people who don't know Jesus and instead of worrying about whether it's the right time or whatever, just try to be creative in terms of bringing up spiritual things and just say, hey, listen, do you, do you know the hope of Jesus, what he's offered? Well, I, I'm not gonna say that I should be fired as a child of God if I don't get there. But what, what other greater ambition could I have than to sharing Jesus with people who don't know him? I mean, there's some people who will line up all kinds of goals for their business and for their family and for their personal development. You know, it's the typical, I'm gonna get into a workout routine and I'm gonna get healthier. There's a lot of things we don't mind setting goals to do, but the one place we struggle is, hey, do we wanna be great for God? And some of us just struggle with going like, man, I think it'd be great if I just pick this up once a week. And it often tells us that we've lives are so cluttered up with being great in the world that we've lost sight of what being great according to Jesus is. And so the picture is this. While the world builds things on performance, success, and self-sufficiency, I will tell you the whole idea of self-worth is built on our identity in Christ. And I will propose to you, as I have in the past, that one of the biggest struggles for most of us as Christians is that when we aren't really confident of our identity in Christ and what God says is true about how he sees us in a relationship with him, we struggle with lots of other stuff because we keep self-condemning ourselves, we think we're unworthy of stuff, we think we're worthless, we've got nothing to contribute, we can't make any differences, I don't have the right kind of gifts, I'm not smart enough, I don't have enough education, I don't have the right kind of job. There's a myriad of excuses we make to say, if only these things were in place, then I could be significant. And Jesus says, if you learn to be a servant, I'll give you all the significance you want. I'll give you more significance than you can handle. Instead of looking for all the honors and the accolades of the world, we need to start looking to say, God, what does it mean to be great for you? And it comes down to one word, learn to be a servant. If, you're, if you don't know how to be a servant of Christ, you will never discover the significance of being great in God's kingdom. I don't care what talents you have, I don't care what gifts you have, I don't care what anything else, if you can't learn to be a servant, you will never discover greatness as far as God is concerned. 
And as far as significance, it's not so much success, but the first shall be last. It's not about whether I can outposition myself in front of everybody else. It's whether I can be a servant, I'm willing to be last because I know my sense of significance comes from what God wants me to do, not what everybody else wants me to do or what I think I should do. And security is being a servant. I uh, was given a gift this week, this uh, Christmas, by a regional director. Actually, I got a couple of these this year. Um, and I wanted to finish by reading a section out of this called Battling a Destructive Desire. It takes a minute to get there, but the first sort of phrase is up there, and I'll just follow from there, but I want to read it for you. And I want you to think of it in terms of greatness as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. And think of it as as some of the things that you want to be great at interfering with being what it means to be great as far as God is concerned. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing. We might put being great. Maybe it's being worth something. Maybe it's being significant or secure. That were were I to indulge in it would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather, let my life be thine. Take my desires, let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. I faced faced with this temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak. So be my strength. I am shadowed. Be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now, and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory, but listen how he defines it. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find peace that I long for. No lasting satisfaction apart from your your reclamation of my heart. Let me build then my king a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity and unto your welcoming arms, and unto the sound of your voice, pronouncing the judgment, well done. Do you want 2024 to be a great year? If there's any resolution I encourage you to make, make it that you want to understand greatness according to Jesus, not the world, and not even to yourself. Need to make any changes? Depends what you value. And I hope that you, along with all of us, will value greatness according to the kingdom of God.